a plow through the Exodus story. To catch a oh thank you did you bring an extra one uh -huh. oh good this one's dead I'll take it toss that to catch an answer to the question that we asked last week so I suppose it's better to say we're going to catch a confirmation of the answer to the question that we asked last week. So last week we asked the question, what does God want? And I told you the answer that you'll never, ever, 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 ever again forget. What is it? Everyone forgot. <laughs> that's okay, that's why we're back at it. Amen, God wants to be the center of everything. To every individual in here, to every one of his called out, marked, regenerated, born again, adopted saints, he wants to be the center of your life, every aspect of it. Never, ever, ever, ever forget. Never complicate it. Keep it simple. He says the kingdom of heaven belongs to the children. You got to think about this simply. And God simply wants to be the center of your life. Every aspect he informs, every aspect he's involved in, every aspect he is a part of. There is zero part of our lives as we align with the Father's purposes, there is zero part of our lives that are detached from him. There's no aspect of our life that is separated from him. That's what God wants, to be the center of all of it. And today's message is meant to be an awesome word of encouragement. I know it's to the kids. I also believe it's specifically to the newlyweds, but it, certainly for all of us. That as God and when God is the center of every part of your life, life is amazing. And life works. And you are blessed, and you are protected, and you have significance, and you have peace, and hope, and joy that transcends and goes far beyond any of the circumstances you might be in. And I say that because of a theme that I see emerging, not specifically in our congregation, but just in the community around us, everyone's holding their breath for 2021, right? Everyone is like, this year has been awful. I can't wait until 2021 so this year's behind us and everything's going to be good again. Yeah. And, and there's this belief that like a, a, a turning of a page on the calendar is going to like flip a switch that makes everything good again. Yeah. Guess what? probably not going to be that way. If the Bible has anything to say about it, 2021 is going to be worse. And 2022 is going to be worse than that. It's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse until the king returns. 
okay? So if we ever think that our happiness and our joy and life going well and our marriage going well and our futures being bright, if we think that has anything to do with anything other than what the Lord is showing us right now, he wants you corrected, he wants me corrected, and he wants us to be encouraged that God being the center of every part of our life is the answer. The answer to what? Everything getting better. And he gets to decide, by the way, what better means. Okay, so, so God's desire is to be the center of every aspect of our life. I want to unpack that within the parameters of the old covenant. Okay, I want to see if we can identify the three things that we identified last week that, that essentially shows and is the fruit that God is indeed the center of our lives. So we mentioned three things that we can receive by, via his commandments as an answer to the question, what does God want? His commandments can give us a picture of that. But even more specifically, we can look at the life of Jesus, right? Are we all in agreement that Jesus had God at the center of his life? Yeah. Right? We can be in agreement about that. Jesus was the perfect picture of a human fully connected to, fully surrendered by, fully led by, fully uh, submissive to and obedient to the God of the Bible. Jesus walked that out perfectly. And the three aspects of his life that we identified were what? First works or intimacy? Did Christ have intimacy with the Father? Yeah. Times when he just went to go be alone with Papa. Right? He lived his life with a rhythm that clearly identified that was central to how he lived. Intimacy with the God of the Bible. What was number two? Obedience, obedience to his commandments. Did Christ walk out obedience to the law? Absolutely perfectly. Had he broken a single one of God's commandments in any way, had he broken them, changed them, watered them down, tweaked or adjusted them in any way, he is no longer qualified to be the sin offering. And we are all here in vain. Thank goodness he did not. He kept God's commandments and walked them out perfectly, not specifically to abolish them, but to literally put them on display and show us what it looks like. Okay, so he had first works or intimacy with the Father. He walked in God's ways by keeping all of his commandments. And thirdly, fully committed to the mission. How committed was Jesus? So committed that he gave his life for it. And not just gave his life for it. As Diane said last week, that's almost, you know, that can almost be an easy act. Someone puts a gun to my head and says, deny Christ or die, I'm going to die. And it won't be a difficult decision to make. But to get up today and live for him, and get up tomorrow and live for him, and get up the next day and live for him, when it's contrary to how I feel, or contrary to what I used to do, or contrary to how everyone else is doing it, that's a little bit more difficult, right? So, so Christ's commitment to the mission was a daily reality. So, so thorough, he said things like, I only do the will of the Father. 
I don't believe Jesus ever embellished or exaggerated or lied. So when he says, I only do the will of the Father, I think that's exactly what he means. When he says, I only speak the words the Father gave me, I think that's exactly what he spoke. When he says, when you see me, you see the Father. When you see what I'm doing, you know what the Father is doing. All of those to me communicate that he was 100% every moment of every day fully committed to the master's business and whatever his role and contribution to that business was. So that is a beautiful list of three as we are evaluating, and this is what the Lord's doing in us. He wants us to evaluate where we are as it relates to God being the center of our lives. The areas of life that we can look at specifically are where are we in intimacy and in first works, where are, we, where are we with obedience to his commandments, and where are we with commitment to his mission. Now, I want to see if that same list of desires as an answer to the question, what does God want? I want to see if we see those things represented in the old covenant. And with a recognition that this whole story is given to point us to Christ, right? This whole story is given to give us eyes to see the larger thing that Jesus was going to do, the larger redemptive story that he was uh, the, center, the center figure of. All of this is to point to that. So I would speculate that we're going to see the same things. We're going to see the same desires. We're going to see the same heart of God represented in the old covenant as we do in the new. Let's put that to the test. Uh, first, Exodus 6. We're just going to read a whole bunch of tests. Te we're going to read a whole bunch out loud. All right, when you're reading, please do me a favor and stand up uh, and project real loud. Let's just uh, take the Exodus story and we're going to take like a 10,000 foot view of it. So we're going we're gonna to run the story and we're going to read certain texts and we're going to look at what is being identified as to what does God want with what he's doing. First one is Exodus 6. Verses 1 through 9, please, if someone wouldn't mind. Then the Lord said to Moses, now, shall, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his, of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard a groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out, of, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you 
with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Okay, so recognize, by the way, obviously we're not going to read every word of the old of the of the uh, old covenant here in the in the details of the old covenant um, i've just picked specific texts that are great for summary statements this is one of the original ones in which god is communicating to moses um the expression of the covenant that started with who abraham Right and and the passing of this covenant or the or, or the application of this covenant being for the children of Israel, right? And and what does he specifically say? We're we're asking the question: What does God want within the first covenant? His desires are beginning to be expressed. Okay, so what does God want with this people? Okay, he wants to be their God and he wants them to be his people. Okay. Did, did um, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel know him in that way? No. Sort of. He said, I revealed myself to them, but they did not know my name, the Lord. Right? So there, so there was this um, revelation of who God is, but, but he wants to show more. Okay? So he wants to call this. I'm just going to list a few things here. So I wrote down, God wants to call a group of people to himself and reveal himself to that group. Everyone see those two things in that text? Okay. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from the yoke, the yoke, the yoke of the Egyptians. So he wants to reveal himself as he calls a group of people to himself he wants to reveal himself to that group so that, indeed, they will be his people and he will be their God. Okay? Now, um, eight, Exodus 8. So we know, we know what he has to call them out from. Right? Where are the people of Israel right now? What's their state, status? They're slaves in Egypt. Okay, so now, now we're going to um, uh, hit on an aspect of the plagues that is often overlooked, but I think it communicates something very, very specific that God wants to do. We're answering the question, what does God want? We're looking at the Old Covenant story to answer that question. So far, he wants to call a group unto himself and reveal himself to them. 
Now verse 8. Someone read please 22 and 23 of, of, of chapter 8. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be... That's it. Okay, read, read 23 again. This is the plague of what? Flies. Okay. God is getting ready to show that the flies are only going to affect one side. Wow. Listen, to how, listen to how the word communicates it. Listen to the, the words of scripture as they reveal God's heart and God's why. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. So I wrote down, he wants, to, he wants to show a clear distinction between his people and everybody else. Okay, so let's, let's read a couple more that communicate the same thing. Let's go to another plague. Chapter 9, the plague of livestock. Someone please read verses 1 through 4. my people go so that they may worship me but if you refuse let them go and keep holding them then the lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field the horses donkeys camels herds and flocks but the lord will make a distinction between the livestock of israel and the livestock of egypt so that nothing of all that the israelites own will are we here starting to hear clearly? Next one, chapter 9, verse 26. Hail. I'll read this one because it's nice and short. <laughs> Regarding the plague of hail, verse 26 says, Only in the land of Goshen, and by the way, he says about this hail, it's deadly. Where it's dropping, it's never been, hail this size has never been seen before and it's killing. But, it says, verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Why? Because part of what God wants to do with the group of people that he calls to himself and reveals himself to so that he can be their God and, their, and, and they can be his people he wants the whole world to see that there is a very clear distinction between that group and everybody else. Uh, 20, uh, I'm sorry, 10, 21 through 23, the plague of darkness. Exodus 20, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus 10, 21 through 23. 
Are we seeing the, the repeated message? In the plagues, there's two repeated messages that often get missed. The first one um, we haven't mentioned yet today, but I've done a teaching on it in the past, so hopefully you remember. For every single plague and every single time Moses went to Pharaoh, he always said, let my people go, speaking for God, let my people go so that what? They can worship me. They can serve me. They can hold a feast for me in the wilderness. They can worship me. They can serve me. They can hold a feast for me in the wilderness so they can worship me, so they can serve me, so they can hold a feast for me in the wilderness, right? This is the, why does God call people out? Why does God call a group of people to himself, right? He doesn't save just to save. He saves for a reason because he wants something with this group of people. As they recognize he is God and they are his, he, he begins to establish a clear distinction between them and everybody else. This group that worships him, this group that serves him, this group that's called out by him, their lives are different. Somehow, some way, what's going on to the whole rest of the world doesn't happen to these guys. Right? This is a very clear message God's given. And it culminates, the final... Um, act of this calling out follows the same pattern and and we all know the story god warns that the death angel is coming imminent death is coming and he says to the ones that he is calling to himself you can be saved from this imminent death by following very specific instructions you're going to bring a perfect lamb into your home. You're going to, you're going to kill that lamb on the night that I uh, prescribe. You're going to mark your home with that um, unblemished lamb's blood. And when the destroyer passes over the land, you will be spared from that imminent death. And that will be the final judgment upon Pharaoh and, and Egypt. And he is going to release you from that moment. It follows in the same pattern that God is calling a specific group out to himself, that he is revealing himself to that group, and he is showing that between that group and the rest of the world, there is a dramatic distinction. And the final marking of that group, or the final marking upon that group, to see that, that release and that coming to himself is the blood of a lamb. Remember, all this points. All this prophesies. All this promises something larger that's to come. Okay, let's keep going with the story. Now let's go to Exodus 16. The first instruction that God gives the children of Israel. Anyone know what it's regarding? Manna. It's sort of about manna, but it's about something larger. Okay, so let's read. We're still answering the question, what does God want? Based on the Old Covenant and the Exodus story, what does the word, what does what's written communicate that the God of the Bible wants? Exodus 16, verses 4 and 5, please. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, 
people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Listen to me now. What's, what's God done so far? He remembered his covenant and he called a group of people to himself. As he revealed himself to, to that group and said, I want to be your God, you're going to be my people, you need to listen to what I'm, I'm, I'm instructing. And that is very, very important because the final plague, you're going to have to follow some very specific instructions. But if you do, you will be released. And as they did, God kept, keeps his promise. They are released. They, they head off into the wilderness. It's not long in the wilderness that they realize there's no Walmart. <laughs> and they're in the desert. And they're getting hungry. So God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. But listen very specifically to what God says. Okay, listen to, listen to, the, listen to the words of Scripture this is the first instruction that God gives his children in the wilderness. This is the first thing he's teaching them. And what, is he, and what does he say regarding the manna? Gather a certain amount every day. And why does he share that with them? To see if they will listen. Listen to the words of scripture. He says, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, where that text would be confusing based on a whole bunch of wrong teaching in the church is we've all been taught that the law was given at Sinai. Right? So why is this confusing? Because Sinai has not happened yet. And yet the God of the Bible is talking about his law. Okay, something bigger is being revealed here. And what is he teaching regarding his law that is already established? What, what is this teaching of the law of God highlighting is already established? Sabbath. Sabbath is already established. Do not be confused ever, saints, that the Sabbath is a Jewish thing. Right? Or given to the Jews. There is no tribe of Judah at this point. Therefore, there is no Jew. Therefore, there is no Judaism. But Sabbath is established. And Sabbath is being taught. Why? Because Sabbath is God's. And for God's people. And it's the first thing that he tests his people with once they're in the wilderness because he wants to know. I'm going to be your God. I want you to be my people. And I'm beginning to communicate to you what that entails. If you want to be my people and you want me to be your God, you need to know my ways. You need to know my laws. You need to know my statutes and my judgments and my precepts and my ordinances, and you need to keep them. Okay, let's go, let's go on. Exodus 16, 27 through 30. 
To, you know what's funny? How many laws has God given them? One. God is already fed up. I gave you one law and they're already breaking it. The language is hilarious to me. How long is this going to continue? In the same chat. I mean, this has to be days, right? We don't know exactly, but it seems like it's rather quick. God's already fed up with it. But listen, we're answering a question here. What does God want? He wants to call a group of people to himself. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people. He wants to show that there is a very clear distinction between this group and the rest of the world. Now we're moving on to what that distinction is, how that distinction is shaped. Go ahead and finish that text, Andrew. I had us read that passage to recognize that this first thing that God was teaching his, his people was not about manna. It was about Sabbath. The very first thing that God teaches his set-apart people that he, is calling him to, that he is calling to himself was Sabbath. Okay? There's more, though. How can there be more? They haven't been to Sinai yet. God's ways are eternal. God's ways are his. God's ways are not Jewish. God's ways were not strictly for the Jews. God's ways are for God's people. So let's, let's read um, Exodus 18. We're taking a 10,000 foot view. Exodus 18 verses 15 through 22, please. Okay, so what do we know about Moses at this point? Somehow, some way, he knows what? God's laws. God's laws. He knows that the God of the Bible has a way to live. He knows that the God of the Bible has specific instructions for human beings to live by. Somehow, some way, Moses knows that at this point. And what's going on? He's leading this giant group of people in the wilderness. And whenever this group of people has a question or confusion or conflict about how to live, they come to Moses and Moses instructs them in what? God's laws, God's statutes, God's judgments, God's precepts, God's ordinances. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that Moses is already knowing these things. And he's already using them to lead the people and guide the people and in, in specifically settle disputes. Okay, so Jethro has, a, has an observation that he's going to share here. Go ahead, Kirby. Uh, verse 17. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, 
rulers of ten. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Okay, so what's the instruction? What's the, what's the advice? Don't be the only guy that knows God's ways. Teach it to others, teach his ways to others, and teach his ways specifically to other men that can lead with you, that can handle disputes with you, that can handle matters alongside of you. So you're not the only one that knows it all, right? What does God want? What, what does he communicate through his old covenant that he wants? He wants to call a group of people unto himself. He wants to reveal himself to that group. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people. He wants to show the whole world there's a clear distinction between them and everybody else. And, and one of the primary ways he is going to do this is by leading this group to keep his commandments. And in order for that whole group to keep his commandments, those commandments, those ways of God have got to be taught. Okay? We're tracking. Um, the, the kind of the culmination of this invitation is Exodus 19. The Mount Sinai meeting. Someone please read for us verses 1 through 6. We're about to get a couple of words, a little bit of language to kind of encapsulate God's desires for this group that he's calling to himself. Okay. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came, they, uh, the same day came they to the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from Rephidim, <laughs> and they were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and there and there Israel camped before the mount, and Moses went up unto God. And the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then shall then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Amen. For all the earth is mine. And you shall make, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So there is Father God's summary statement of everything we just captured. We can see it going all the way back to the Exodus story. We can see it going back to the details within the Exodus story, exactly what God wants, exactly what he is doing. And then here he, he really summarizes it in just a couple sentences. He says, the whole earth is mine, but I'm calling to myself a special group. And that group, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to label them with, with two words that really encapsulate all the rest of this. This is going to be a nation of priests, and they are going to be holy. To summarize a group that is clearly distinct from the rest of the world, that teaches commandments, or that keep his commandments, and, and teach their 
teach that people to do the same. He calls that group a nation of priests or a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God wants. Now he begins to get very, very clear about exactly what holiness looks like. Right? Holiness means what? Set apart unto him. Set apart unto him. Right? So he is saying of this group that I'm calling to myself, their distinctness, their distinctness is a very specific distinctness. Right? Their difference from the rest of the world is a very specific difference. And it's summarized in one word. And that's holy. And why, why are his people to be holy? Because he is holy. Because he is separated from the rest of the world. Because he is distinct from the rest of the world. Because he is singular and like no other. His people are to be the same way. And so from Exodus 19.6 through the rest of the Torah, which takes us through Deuteronomy, we have the giving of all the rest of God's ways. And we have spent many hours pouring through that text, right? And what we know about that text is it communicates the fullness of God's ways, lacking nothing. It informs what areas of life, every area. There is no area of life that it does not inform. There, there is no aspect of being human that is not informed by God's perfect ways. Right? So he lays it out for them perfectly. He gives them the perfect instruction to be his prized possession, his treasured possession. A whole nation of people who are clearly distinct from the whole rest of the earth. And the why behind that is really big, right? And we see it clearly in the Passover um, or the whole plagues uh, narrative. Why does God want this stuff to be seen? Why does God want his people to be distinct? What does it ultimately communicate about him? That he's real, right? That he's powerful. His glory will be revealed. His power will be revealed. His sovereignty will be revealed. The nations will hallow the Lord when they see his people set apart, the prophet Ezekiel says. Right? So it's super important to the God of the Bible that his people walk in his ways because they represent him. Right? They've been called out by him, set apart by a number of miraculous interventions. And that was always for a reason, so that they can serve him, worship him, and represent him, so that they can carry out his business in the earth, so that he can be made known by that group in the earth. So because... Because by the end of Deuteronomy, there's a bunch of story that's taken place and there's, bunch of, there's been a bunch of disobedience to that calling. Um, the language and the, and the um, sort of the specificness of, 
of this opportunity and the consequences of disobeying it get really clear, begin to get really clear. So, so let's, let's go to sort of the end of, of Deuteronomy, at the end of the Torah, and, and, and listen to the same, listen with the same ears. What does the Exodus story communicate the God of the Bible wants? The first one we're going to read is Deuteronomy 10. Verses 12 through 22. Sometimes the paragraph headings just do a, a great job of getting, getting of, of preparing us to hear what God is saying. So what I just said is that God has called a group of people to be priests in the earth and holy unto him, distinct and set apart from the rest of the world. And he gives uh, perfect instruction on how to go about doing that. And now at the end of the story, he's having to deal with the second generation. So he's sort of having to repeat himself, if you will. And when he repeats himself, he does so with awesome clarity. So this is a great paragraph because God's basically getting ready to share through Moses. Look, here's the essence of the law. Here's why I gave you my ways in case you forgot. Go ahead, Kirby. Okay, so if you ever want to wonder what the Old Covenant communicates, the God of the Bible wants, you just read it in a beautiful summary text. Go ahead, Kirby. The essence of the law, to love and serve God. The essence of the law is for God to be the center of your whole life. Why? Because you've been chosen. He chose you. He called you to himself. He desires to be your God and wants you to be his. He wants your life to be distinct from all the rest of the earth. He wants to show through your life that he makes distinction between his own and everybody else. 
So as he calls you to himself, he requires you to be holy like he is holy. He requires you to fear him and keep all of his commandments, to participate with him in his business, which is caring for the widow and orphan amongst other things. Are we hearing the Father's heart through the Old Testament story, through the Old Covenant specifically? Next. We'll, we'll, I'll just summarize these verses reading them. Chapter 11, you can read right there. He reiterates how obedience is rewarded. 12 and 13, he speaks specifically about the punishments that come with the primary form of disobedience or the primary thing that will hijack exactly what God has called this group of people to himself for, and that is idolatry and disobedience. He speaks about what will happen in, in those two cases. And then he basically spends the rest of Deuteronomy, again, dealing with the second generation, retelling the the law, the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, the precepts, the ordinances, re-giving the law, speaking specifically about every area of life and how the word of God informs it. He's, and this takes us all the way to uh, Deuteronomy 26. And one more time, we get another beautiful summary statement. We're answering the question, what does the God of the Bible want? And what does he want as we see specifically through the Old Covenant. And chapter 26, verses 16 through 19, another beautiful summary statement. I'll read this one. Deuteronomy 26, starting in verse 16. So this is, this is Moses coming to the end of his, of his leadership time. This is Moses basically beginning his parting shot to the second generation before he dies and, and passes the torch to, to Joshua. He's already gone over the whole um, law a second time, gone over the whole story a second time, reiterated what God wants, recommunicated what God's heart is, and now he's just going to summarize it. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and, you, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep all of his commandments and that he will set you high above the nations which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor. And that you, may that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Amen. Very, very beautiful, crystal clear communication of the Father's heart in the Old Covenant. This was the opportunity for Israel. This was the invitation for Israel. Chapter 27, then, highlights something that I want to just put on your mind and then want you to shelve for just a second. 
What does Moses command the people to do in the beginning of chapter 27? What? Before that. Yep, he wants them to write it down. He wants the children of Israel to write down the entire thing on stones. All of it. He just reiterated exactly what God is asking of this group. Walk in his ways. So it almost kind of makes sense that Moses' next thing to, to say is, right, you got to write down his ways. And in addition to writing down his ways, go to um, 31. Uh, by the way, um, 28 and 29, I didn't have us uh, read because we've done read those so extensively. 28 is another very clear chapter outlining the blessings for obedience and the, dis and the curses for disobedience, ending with um, the covenant being renewed in uh, chapter 29, and then verse 30, God basically saying through Moses, now you get to choose. Obedience in life, disobedience and death. The choice is yours. It's all right in front of you. My heart has been fully revealed. What I'm inviting you to be is crystal clear. It's all literally written down on stone for you. All you got to do now is choose. Choose to do it. Choose to walk it out. And you will be what? My treasured possession, my holy nation, my set apart people, a light to the whole world. The, the, the picture by which the rest of the world will come to see and know that the Lord, he is God. So then Joshua um, is getting ready to become the new leader. Moses is getting ready to pass on his, his torch and, and read real quick uh, verses 9 through 13. Deuteronomy 31, 9 through 13. Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the Lord's covenant and to all the elders of Israel. Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of debt cancellation during the festival of booths, when all Israel assembles in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he chooses, you are to read this Isn't that a beautiful period at the end of this sentence? Such a, such a beautiful parting instruction. Now that you have his ways, now that you have his laws, his commandments, his statutes, his precepts, his, now that it's all written down, now what do you got to do? Teach it. Teach it to who? Everybody. Specifically the children. Why? Because that is what ensures that this 
calling and invitation and opportunity stays and, and is passed on generationally. Okay, but here's what I want you to think about and remember. The law had to be written on stones. The law had to be reread every seven years. The law had to be taught externally. And the, and the effort to walk this out is all external. It is just a flat out human effort invitation at this point. Everyone recognize that? Okay, so that would help us to then uh, answer the question, what went wrong? Right, why didn't this work? Is it in Hebrews where it says it wasn't mixed with faith? Okay, there's, there's multiple reasons, many yeah. of which are identified in Hebrews. Let's just read a couple of quick uh, verses because, because I think there's something specific the Lord wants us to hone in on. Uh, first one is Galatians 5 and 17. Uh, actually, not, let's, go, let's do Romans 8, 7 first. Someone else go ahead and find Galatians 5, 17. Someone else can find 1 Corinthians 13, 14. We want to know why this didn't work. God was very clear in the Old Covenant what he wanted. Crystal clear. He gave very clear instructions. He regave those very clear instructions. He added with those instructions not just the opportunity that was being given, but the consequences if that opportunity was not embraced. He could not have been more clear what he wanted. He wanted to call a group of people to himself. He wanted to reveal himself to that group. He wanted to show the whole world that this group is different because they belong to the God of the Bible. He wanted their whole way of life, every aspect of their life to be set apart and different and distinct. He wanted to teach them to be an entire nation that was different from the rest of the world. A special group treasured and prized by the God of the Bible clearly identified by the distinction of how they lived and loved and cared for one another. He gave them literally word for word written instruction on how to carry it out. Deuteronomy 30 said this is not that far off. You do not have to go to the other side of the ocean to get it. You do not have to go up to space, up to heaven to retrieve it. It is right in front of you. It is on your lips and in front of your face. You just got to choose to do it. Somehow, some way, it failed. And Lizzie's first comment was, they were human. So what does that really mean? What does that ultimately communicate? What's Romans 8, 7 say? Okay, what is the carnal mind? The human mind. The carnal mind is the human mind. Uh, let's just make this super simple. What does enmity mean? The enemy. Okay, so let me just let me just 
clarify with, with a couple of words here exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying a human being, the human mind, is at war with God. And, and, and the specific way in which that is walked out is what, Michael? Cannot submit to the law of God, nor indeed will it ever. Okay, so what's the instruction, saints? What's the heart of God as revealed in the Old Covenant for a people group to be distinct from the rest of the world specifically by doing what? Walking in God's ways. What does Paul say in Romans 8 and 7? A human being can't do that. Wow. Curveball. Did God screw that up or what? Okay, let's keep reading. Galatians 5 and 17. Let me read Romans 8 one more time again. The carnal mind, the human mind, is, an, is the enmity of God or the enemy of God. The human mind is the enemy of God. It will not submit to his law, nor indeed can it. A human being, saints, will not submit to God's law. A human being will not keep God's commandments. A human being, according to the perfect scriptures, cannot keep God's commandments. Is that clear enough? A human being cannot keep God's commandments. The whole invitation, or at least a huge central part of this invitation, is to keep God's commandments. The Bible just said a human being can't do that. Galatians 5 and 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Okay, one more time. Let's just use human, the human word. The human is against the spirit, and the spirit is against the human. They're opposite one another. So they're going to do nothing but battle. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 2, 13 and 14. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy, Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so Galatians 5 and 17 says that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another. They are contrary to one another. They are opposite of one another. The flesh and the spirit. The flesh is just natural man. Okay, here, here we get some, some clarity on why. Because the natural man cannot do what? Hear, understand, or receive anything of the spirit isn't that what Paul says he says specifically the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God they are <coughs> excuse me foolishness to him so a human being cannot receive from the spirit of God it's only foolishness to him a human being cannot receive the things of God 
If it is of the Spirit, a natural human being, it's only going to be foolishness to him. Specifically, he cannot, it's, it's foolishness to him, nor can he know them. The natural man cannot know anything of the Spirit. So the natural man is an enemy of God, can't submit to his laws. The natural man is contrary to the Spirit, they are opposed to one another. And the natural man can receive nothing of the Spirit, he literally cannot receive it, cannot know it. It's only going to be foolishness to him. Have you ever seen someone that's not born again try and re read the scriptures? Right? Have you tried to ever explain to someone who's not born again why you keep God's commandments? Why you walk in his ways? How God has spoken to you? How the word is illuminated to you? Have you ever just got that blank look? Have you ever got the... the um, I just don't get the God thing. I can't see the God thing. I can't understand the God thing. I can't get my head around the God thing. What are they saying, saints? It's all foolishness. I cannot receive it. I cannot hear it. I cannot know it. That doesn't mean they're dumb. That doesn't mean they have bad theology. That doesn't mean they have bad teaching. It means they're literally natural man. So was everyone in this story. So does it only make sense that this story ended in disaster when the New Testament teaches that the natural man cannot submit to God's law? Does that give us a little indication why the very first commandment God gave, just don't collect on this day, still got broken? Because the natural man cannot submit to God's law nor will it ever. So listen to this. Listen to how deep this goes. Okay? What the Bible teaches is that anything of the Spirit cannot be received by the natural man, by human. Anything of the Spirit cannot be received by human. So what does the Bible teach is Spirit? Throw it out. God. Okay, that's a good place to start. John 4, 24? Yeah. God is what? God is spirit. The word says that the natural man cannot know spirit, cannot know the spirit, cannot know the things of the spirit, cannot submit to the spirit. The spirit is only foolishness to the natural man. Let's start at the very top. God is spirit. Is it starting to make sense why those who are not born again are so lost? Okay, what else is spirit? What's Romans 7, 14? What does Paul say? The law is spirit. For we know that the law is spiritual. So does it make sense that to someone that is not born again, the laws of God are going to be absolutely misunderstood and not known in any way? And who's the perfect example of this in Scripture? The Pharisees, right? The word teaches that the natural man cannot submit to the law of God. So for the Pharisees to try and submit to what they believed were God's law necessarily mean they'd have to change it, which they did, and dilute it, which they did, and add to it, which they did, and subtract from it, which they did, and do it for all the wrong reasons, which they did. 
right? So the natural man is at war with God, at war with the spirit, cannot submit to the law of God, foolishness, anything of the spirit is foolishness to him. God is spirit, the law is spirit. What else is spirit? How about Jesus' words? Right? The words that I speak to you are what? Spirit, spirit and life. So what chance does the natural man have? What chance, saints, does the natural man have? What is the entire old covenant intended to communicate to us? We absolutely have zero chance of doing this on our own. We have zero chance for salvation. We have zero chance to know God. We have zero chance to want to worship. We have zero chance to submit to his ways. We have zero chance of being set apart. We have zero chance of embracing holiness. We have zero chance of any part of God in our life as a natural human being. Cannot know God, cannot submit to his ways, cannot understand the word of, the word of Jesus, there's probably way more, but those three are a pretty darn good, thorough communication of exactly what is not available to us as a natural man. So, it's at this point that we need to correct what's commonly a massive error. Everyone's attention peaked because you need to hear this. It's super important. Because the things that I've communicated thus far this morning are very clear, God's expectations in the old covenant, the opportunity that he was giving to the ones that he was calling to himself, the, the specific instructions of what he wanted from them and for them, how critical obedience and keeping his laws and commandments and statutes and judgments and precepts were to that invitation. Then we get to the New Testament and we read these passages and say, look, Paul says, we can't submit to the law. We can't know God. We can't keep his commandments. We can't, we will never be subject to his commandments. What typically at this point gets changed? God does. Right? And specifically, God gets changed by the law being changed. Right? So, so if you ask most, they, they would say, what's the, what's, what does God want in the new covenant? So let's, let's answer this question. What does God want in the new covenant? A hundred percent 100% and in every way the exact same thing. Okay, and if you look at each of these things within the context of the new covenant, you will see that absolutely every one of them is in place. Absolutely one of the, every one of them is undiluted, unpolluted, unchanged in every way. Okay, so what, what often gets changed in the translation? It's the law. Right, so so let's let's communicate crystal clearly how we can know for a fact that it is not the changing of the law in the second covenant. Okay, just a couple of texts that are important for us. Deuteronomy four two. Anyone know what that one is? 
What's that? Someone can read it if you want to. Do you recognize that to do away with a single commandment would literally be to be would literally break the law? When it says, do not add or take away a single commandment from this law that I've given you, we need to understand that for God to remove a single law, he would have literally had to break his own law. We recognize that? God would have had to break his own law to eliminate anything, to change anything, twist anything, delude anything, add or subtract in any way. He would have had to break his own commandment. Okay, now let's read uh, Psalm 119, 142. Someone may know this one. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Someone read it. Who found it? Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. So for the law to be changed, we're confronting a massive lie, saints. The massive lie is that in the second covenant, the law is changed. Why is it so important that we expose this lie? Because we just got done saying that the whole Old Covenant story so vividly, crystal clearly, unambiguously, I have a hard time saying that, communicates how central God's law is to his expectations, his desires, what God wants, what the God of the Bible wants. The heart of the distinctness of the people of God are that we walk in his ways. So what a beautiful lie of the enemy to try and come in at some point and say the ways aren't necessary anymore. The ways don't matter. The ways been changed. The ways are Jewish. The ways are Old Covenant. The ways are Old Testament. The ways are done away with. The ways are nailed to the cross. The ways are abolished. And every other incantation that has been taught to come against God's perfect law. It cannot be changed. Why? Literally, to change it would be to break it. God's not going to break his own law. The word says that the law is truth. Is God going to change truth? What truth is he going to eliminate? What truth is he going to water down? What truth is he going to erase? His laws are truth, and truth doesn't change. How about John 16:13 that when the spirit of truth comes he will lead you into all truth right so the truth and the holy spirit are literally like one and the same so again to change the law would be to change things that are never ever ever going to change how about Romans 12 Romans 7:12 just something Paul happens to call the law, the commandments. What does he call them? Your commandments are holy, or your, 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 your law is holy, and the commandments holy, righteous, and good. So if the law is truth, if the law comes from the Father, if the law is holy, righteous, and good, 
What if it needs to change? It's such an insult to the God of the Bible to say that he went through all of this and it ended in such a failure. What needed to change is God's ways. What needed to change is God's commandments. What needed to change is his perfect instruction. That's what needed to be dealt with. So human beings can continue to be whatever we want to be, continue to live however we want to live, as long as we say a prayer, God's will is being done. Right? This is God's will. And it's never changed. What's the last prophet speak? Malachi 3 and 6 or so, or 6 and 8. I am the Lord and I what? Do not change. What God wants will never change. It will never change. What does God want? He wants to call a group of people to himself. What does he want to do with that group of people? Reveal himself to them so that he can be their God and there can be his people. He wants to show in those people's lives an incredible distinction between them and the rest of the world by specifically keeping his commandments and, and making sure those commandments are taught all the way down through by walking in his ways that people group are going to be a, a set-apart holy group of priests and kings, and they will participate in the master's business. None of that has changed in the second covenant. It is an absolute lie and deception and, and bewitchment on the body of Christ to believe that what needed to change was the law. The law does not change because it's truth. The law does not change because it's perfect. What needed to be dealt with? We did. And all of this is to point something out to us, saints. All of it is to point something out that cannot be missed in this moment. And here's where... Here's where this meets us, where the Lord has us right now. We hopefully are in the are in the process of honestly evaluating where each of us sit. This is where the Lord has us. He wants this congregation and specifically everyone sitting here, he wants us to be honest and courageous and trust him enough to hear, he is saying, I want you to know where you're sitting right now. Where you're sitting in regards to what? Me being the center of your whole life. Well, how do I know if you're the center of my whole life? Listen to what I'm saying. There's three specific aspects that I want you to judge the fruit on. I want you to judge the fruit of your Intimacy with me. What is that? Your first works. What are first works? Times that you spend with me alone. Not for shame or condemnation or anything like that. I just want you to be honest. Where are you and I intimacy-wise? And secondly, where are you at regarding walking in my ways? Dads? 
Where are you at with your whole household being aligned with the word of God? Moms, where are you at with the word of God being taught to your children? Couples, newlyweds, where are you at with your marriage being perfectly aligned with the ordering that God has established? Saints, every one of us, where are we at? With the clear commandments of scripture. The things that God has revealed to us now for five plus years. Not for condemnation, not for shame or guilt of any kind, just honesty. Where do we sit obedience-wise? And thirdly, how about commitment to the mission? What part of your life do you see as belonging to the Father to do with as he sees fit? How often on a daily basis are you hearing from the Holy Spirit specific assignments? How often on a regular basis are you, are you being placed in front of people and God is giving you words to speak? Who have you led to the Lord? Who have you taught his commandments to? Not for condemnation, not for shame or guilt in any way, only to know honestly where we sit. And here's what I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask every one of us to come next week having prayed into and specifically judged the fruit in each of those areas and given yourself a number. Right, Jesus being a 10 and working the other way. And here's what I'm going to summarize the entire teaching for today as a gift of encouragement. Because when those numbers are honest and we clearly see where we sit, there is going to be a desire to see each improved. And I hope that desire goes back to what I said in the very beginning of this message, which is God being the center of our life is the answer to every problem, every longing of our heart. It's the solution to every addiction, depression, confusion, lack of health, lack of hope, lack of trust, lack of clarity. Every struggle you see in the earth, saints, the solution to it is more God. So there is this incredible invitation for all of us that, guess what, absolutely irregardless of the circumstances that happen out there in 2021, our life can be incredibly and dramatically better. And it has nothing to do with the President of the United States. It has nothing to do with another stimulus check. It has nothing to do with the pandemic. It has nothing to do with the stock market or anything else that everyone is freaking out about. The invitation is to have more of God at the center of our life. And so as the Spirit is going to put in us a hunger to see each of those numbers improved, here's the whole point of today's message. That does not happen by trying harder. If that was the case, this would have worked. 
in the second covenant, the solutions are different. So next week, when we each come with those numbers, we will speak specifically about what is different in the second covenant. Because it ain't the law. It ain't the invitation. It ain't the opportunity. It isn't the heart of God. It isn't the invitation on the people of God. Christ accomplished something on the cross that changes how we engage all of these things that remain the same. And that's the, that's the key to understanding the second covenant. That's the key to the better promises of the more excellent ministry. It really can only be understood when you have hopefully the foundation that we got today. In our humanness, we have no chance. When we have the spirit, nothing can stop us. So do the work with me of being honest this week. I highly recommend that you literally write it down. First works, grade. Obedience to the commandments, grade. Commitment to the mission, grade. And I pray that the Spirit would give each of us honesty as we evaluate each of those areas to know specifically where we sit, to be highly encouraged by the opportunity in front of us. Amen. Praise the Lord. Father, we pray that this seed would take root and bear much fruit. We pray that any or every word that was not from you, that was confused or twisted or inaccurate in any way that each of them would fall dead to the ground that only your perfect truth that's aligned with your perfect will for this group for this day would be received i pray for eyes to be opened i pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of god that we might know the hope to which we've been called the inheritance that we have as your saints and the incredible power that we have when we believe. We pray that the specific promises and gifts, our inheritance as heirs in the new covenant, that, that we would fully recognize them for what they are, that we would fully take hold of them in this next season. that sanctification would be better understood and more perfectly embraced in this next season. That each of us would be shown very clear, perfect next steps on how to draw closer to you and see you seated perfectly at the center of every part of our life. That is our heart's desire, Lord that is truly the desire of my heart. My greatest desire, my greatest hunger, my greatest aspiration is to see you seated at the center of every part of my life.
would you open my eyes to where the next steps are? Pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God for each of your saints at NCC for the right next step in the area of first works, in the area of walking in your ways, and in the area of commitment to your mission. I pray for ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.